Well, if you do have a Bible uh, in front of you this morning, I do want to encourage you to open it to Daniel chapter 7. We've taken a four-week break from our series in the book of Daniel, and we did that so that we could prepare our hearts for Easter. Uh, But we are returning to the book of Daniel this morning, and we're in chapter 7. Our series in the book of Daniel is called Kingdoms in Conflict, and we called it that because at the heart of the book of Daniel is this idea that there is a constant conflict that exists between the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God. Now, as we come to chapter 7, I entitled this message, Is the Future Friendly? Now, you might recognize that as an adaptation of the TELUS advertising tagline, The Future Is Friendly. Apparently, they have recently changed that to let's make the future friendly. And I think the reason they've done that, part of it is probably just because they ran with the future is friendly for 20 years now. So they got all the mileage they could out of it. But I think there's another reason why they've changed it to let's make the future friendly. And that is because there's kind of a a common sentiment or maybe a growing sentiment that the future might not be automatically friendly unless we do something about it. As I said, this is a common sentiment. Now, Hollywood movies are actually a good barometer of the kind of angst that our culture or our society might be feeling. Disaster movies have always been popular, but in the last decade or so, We've seen a proliferation of the sort of end of the world as we know it type of movies. And some of these have been of the dystopian variety where the world as we know it has ceased to exist and we're now in some sort of different existence. Or the movies have trended along the lines of the future of life on our planet is threatened, either by aliens or asteroids or deadly viruses or lethal machines or mutant creatures. And that was before COVID hit. The last one we watched had us all fleeing to Greenland. So is the future friendly? It's a good question for us to explore. In some sense, it's a question that every generation has wondered about. Is the future friendly for us? Now, if you remember the the context of the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel begins with a group of Israelites being taken from their homeland and deposited into Babylon, the home of their new overlords. And if you and I had have been alive at the time, and if we had been among that group and we were transported, exiled to Babylon, we would have been asking the question, is the future friendly? Well, Daniel chapter 7 gives an answer to that question for them and for us. So I'm going to read all of chapter 7 for you and then circle back and try to unpack it. This is what it says. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. 
The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery, were, was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and stood before the three of them, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. 
and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, and to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Well, in some ways, I don't really need to say anything today because you all heard the reading and you all fully understand it, right? Well, this chapter actually divides neatly into three sections. You have Daniel's original vision in verses 1 to 8, then a dramatic shift in the vision in verses 9 to 14, and then the interpretation of the vision in verses 15 to 28. And out of those three sections, I want to make three observations. Uh, One about the kingdom of man or kingdoms of man, one about the kingdom of God, and then one about the future for the people of God. So let's start with the first observation. The kingdoms of man are beastly, but still under the sovereignty of God. So Daniel has this wild dream or vision. And in the dream, the sea is stirred up and out of the sea come these four beasts, one at a time. Now, we've now moved from the narrative section of the book of Daniel where we had those stories and we've now moved into the apocalyptic section of the book of Daniel where it's talking about what is to come in the future and it's doing so through a series of visions and dreams and lots of symbolic language. Now, in this case, we know that the four beasts that arise out of the chaotic sea represent four kings or kingdoms. Daniel is told that specifically, that the four beasts represent four kings or kingdoms in verse 17. Now, if a vision about four successive kingdoms sounds familiar to you, it's because we heard it back in chapter 2. We saw a similar vision there. In that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of this great statue, if you remember it, and the statue was made of four different materials. Its head was made of gold, its chest and arms were made of silver, its midsection and thighs were made of bronze, and its calves and feet were made of a mixture of iron and clay. And back when we were in chapter 2, I told you that there are two main ways of interpreting those four kingdoms. The same thing is true here. This is about the same four kingdoms. The four kingdoms are either Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece, or Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Those who take the fourth beast to be Greece typically do so because the description of this fourth beast here, one that is merciless and ruthless and one who blasphemes the name of God, sounds an awful lot like the Greek or Hellenistic uh, ruler Antiochus Epiphanes who persecuted the Jews mercilessly and blasphemed God. And so it matches well with that. I actually take the traditional position that the fourth beast here represents Rome, but not just Rome. That this fourth kingdom, this fourth um, 
king actually represents something beyond Rome and stretches even into today. Now, I should tell you that some of you are going to be disappointed with this message. Well, maybe all of you will be disappointed with this message, but some of you will be disappointed with this message because I'm not going to get into all of the details of what everything might represent. So why did the second beast have three ribs in its mouth? And who do the ten horns represent? I mean, is it a ten-nation confederacy that will arise at the end of time? Is it sort of this tenfold division of Rome that there may have been? Well, I don't think that's actually the point of Daniel chapter 7. I think the point of this vision for us to understand is the beastly nature of the kingdoms of man. All of them are beastly. So back in chapter 2, we saw that there was kind of a digression that occurred within each of the four kingdoms, right? You went from sort of the more valuable metals, the gold and the silver, to the bronze and then the iron and clay. And we see something similar in this vision, except the move from one kingdom to the next kind of ratchets up the intensity of it. So the first kingdom is described in verse 4. And what it says in verse 4 of this first beast or first kingdom, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Well, this is a description of Babylon. Babylon was often represented as a lion. But this sort of hybrid lion has its wings plucked off and it is made to stand upright. It's given the mind of a man. And it could certainly be a description of Nebuchadnezzar himself, right? I mean, he was beastly. He actually went mad. His power, God humbled him. It was sort of his wings were plucked off. He was made to stand on two feet and given the mind of a man, his sanity returned to him. He behaved more humanely from that point on. So we can kind of understand that. The second beast is described as a bear. And when we hear that, we shouldn't think of like Yogi Bear or a zoo animal. This is a ferocious bear. Now, it's a lopsided bear. It says that one side was raised up above the other, maybe depicting Medo-Persia, right? With Persia exerting sort of outsized influence in the kingdom. But the significant thing about this second beast is not that it has three ribs in its mouth, but that it's devouring flesh and what it's told is to arise and go and devour even more flesh. So it's a ruthless kingdom. It is bent on conquering and devouring. The third beast is a leopard with four wings and four heads. The wings probably represent its speed. And the heads that look in all directions probably represent the sort of universal nature of its rule. It might be a fitting description of Alexander the Great. The fourth beast is described as terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. Now, we actually, in one sense, aren't given a ton of physical descriptions. We don't know what animal or animals this thing might have looked like. We're just told that it had great iron teeth and bronze claws and that what it didn't devour with its mouth, it smashed to pieces with its feet. 
It also had 10 horns, a symbol of strength. Plus an 11th horn somehow that started out small, but grew to be larger than all the other horns. And it had eyes on the horns. And it made great boasts with its mouth. Now, I don't even know how you would draw something like that. But all four of these beasts give us, give us a glimpse of the beastly nature of the kingdoms of man. All human kingdoms have this element about them. In her History of Revolutions, historian Barbara Tuchman made this observation. She said, revolutions produce other men, not new men. See, in other words, each successive regime thinks that it is ushering in something new, but in reality, it's actually just the same old barbaric behavior. It devours others. It smashes them to pieces. This is what world history is, has been like. Now, the New Testament book that is most like the book of Daniel is the book of Revelation. It also con contains apocalyptic literature. It gives us a glimpse in that book of what we could at best call a sort of composite beast, kind of like the ones we read here, but a little bit different. And here's what it says in Revelation chapter 13. It says, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads, with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. See, these beasts represent that which is united against God. That is the kingdom of man, constantly in opposition to God and his ways. Now, you might hear all this and say, okay, well, listen, I can see how ancient kingdoms were like that. They were barbaric. They were beastly. But things are different today, aren't they? I mean, we've advanced far beyond all of that. Devouring, haven't we? I remember attending an apologetics conference a, a few years back and listening to Dr. Clay Jones speaking on the problem of evil. And he summarized just a few examples of human depravity from just the past century. And he asked an interesting question. See, we sometimes think of all the progress that we have made. But in fact, as I said just a couple of weeks ago, that the 20th century or the last century was really the bloodiest century in world history. So we could start by thinking about Nazi Germany where six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, along with another six million Slavic people. And at their peak, the ovens in Auschwitz were cremating 4,765 bodies a day. And the question Dr. Jones asked was, is this inhuman? Is it? Is it inhuman? Well, we could think about what took place in the former Soviet Union. Between 1918 and 1989, 26 million people were killed or died in Soviet camps. 
Now, we don't hear a lot about it, but there's still lots of unrest right now between Russia and the Ukraine, and that tension goes back a long way. In 1932 and 33, the Soviets literally tried to starve the people of the Ukraine by both a systematic destruction of their crops and by preventing any food from coming in. It's estimated that some 5 million people died as a result. And again, the question is, is that inhuman? In 1937, Japanese forces invaded Nanking, China and killed 300,000 people in brutal fashion. The women were raped. The men were used for bayonet practice. Is that inhuman? Between 1970 and 1975, 1.3 million Cambodians were executed. An an additional 1 million Cambodians died as a result of starvation and disease brought about by the Cambodian dictator Pol Pot and his Khmer Rouge policies. Is that inhuman? In 1994, 800,000 people were killed in Rwanda in a span of just 100 days. Most of them were killed by machete. Is that inhuman? And we could go on. 1.2 million Armenians were killed in Turkey. That's where the phrase crimes against humanity comes from or originated. Is that inhuman? And before we respond in a self-righteous fashion, we should remember that between 1973 and 2012, 50 million babies have been suctioned, scraped, and scalded to death through abortions in the United States alone. Is that inhuman? Or is that just human? Is this just what we do when we cast God aside and make up our own rules and set up our own kingdoms. Now, I wouldn't pretend to be an expert on this, but the shocking conclusion of those who have researched genocides extensively is that it's actually average people who do genocide. The kingdoms of man are beastly. They always have been but they're still under God's sovereignty. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time here, but I do think it's important to point this out as a way to sort of counteract the fear that could arise from living in the kingdoms of man. There is a kind of restraint that God applies to the kingdoms of man. And you see it here in the way that the first beast has its wings plucked out. It loses some of its power. We could see it later in the chapter, in verse 25. It goes on to say this. He, that's this fourth beast, shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now look, we can debate the meaning of a time, times, and half a time. But the point is that there is a limit that has been set in terms of how long the kingdoms of man will have their sway or their way. And I think there's a broader principle to understand from all of this. The principle is that God sets limits or boundaries around what can take place on earth. 
We might think of the story of Job in the Old Testament. Satan appears before the Lord and and the Lord points to Job as an example of one of his faithful servants. And then Satan says this. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. And his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. And he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, you know that story continues. But what I want you to notice is that God sets some boundaries. You can go this far and no further. And this isn't just true on an individual basis. There are some boundaries that God has set in place. It's an interesting passage in the book of 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament. And here's what Paul says there. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come. Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Right. Very similar to what's being described in the book of Daniel. And then Paul says this. Do you not remember that when I was with you or still with you, I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, I know it's a complicated passage. Who or what exactly is the restrainer that is being described? The one that holds the man of lawlessness back? Is it the government? Is it the Holy Spirit? Scholars are divided on that. And I can't sort all of that out this morning. But what is important for our purposes is to understand that there are restraints that are placed on what beastly human rulers can do. The kingdoms of man are beastly, but they're still subject to the sovereignty of God. So this passage teaches us something about the kingdoms of man. It also teaches us something about the kingdom of God. And what it teaches us is that the kingdom of God is unlike any other kingdom. Now, verses 9 to 14 are kind of sandwiched in between the vision and its interpretation. These verses are part of the vision, but they're strikingly different. I mean, the moment you read them, you encounter something different. Everything Daniel has seen in his vision up to that point is frightening, right? Four beasts coming out of the sea, each more destructive or more terrifying than the one before it. But then in verse 9, he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. The Ancient of Days is God himself. And the moment he shows up is the moment everything changes. See, Daniel's eyes were glued to that terrifying fourth beast with its ten horns. And then suddenly, there's something far greater for him to look at 
And I think there's a word for us in that. I mean, sometimes we are tempted to focus all of our attention on the circumstances that are before us, the prospects in the kingdom of man that might look frightening to us. Look what's coming. And sometimes just what we need to do is we need to be reminded of the greatness of God and the greatness of his kingdom. Now, I can't do this section full justice in the time we have, but from the description we're given here of the ancient of days and the one who is like a son of man, let me quickly highlight for you five ways that the kingdom of God is superior to all other kingdoms. It's superior, firstly, in its wisdom. It says the ancient of days took his seat. Now, in a culture that is as youth-obsessed as ours, it might be hard for us to grasp just how important that descriptor, ancient of days, is. See, the kingdoms of men are constantly changing. No matter who is in power, there's always some young upstart wanting, waiting in the wings. He's got a whole new agenda, a whole new set of ideas. When you've been around for a while, you know that there is nothing new under the sun. The Ancient of Days has seen it all. There's nothing that is going to surprise him or catch him off guard. The beastly nature of man's kingdoms might frighten us, but they do not frighten the Ancient of Days. Psalm 2 says it this way. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And then it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God's not surprised by any of this. He's not frightened by it. Second way the kingdom of God is superior is in its purity. The Ancient of Days is dressed in clothing that is as white as snow. The hair of his head is described as being white like wool. Now, white is a symbol for purity. It's undefiled. It's unstained. And we might understand that on an individual level, but what does it mean for a king or a kingdom to be pure? Well, in contemporary terms, we know that politicians don't always have the best reputation for things like honesty. It's a bit like the time a husband and wife were out walking in a cemetery and they came across one tombstone. And as they read that tombstone, it said, here lies an honest man and a politician. And the wife turned to her husband and said, look, they buried two people here, right? I, it's a dad joke. You have to forgive me on that. See, the reality is we need a pure king. We need a king like this, one who is pure and undefiled. We need a ruler where we don't need to wonder, are they, have they been corrupted in some sort of backroom deal? Do they have kind of mixed motives? Are they not telling us everything? We need a king who is pure. Our king is perfect in his holiness and in his conduct and in his judgments and in his execution of justice. The kingdom of God is also superior in its power. Here it says that his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire came out before him. 
Now, a throne in and of itself is a symbol of power, right? This is where the ruler sits. But this is a flaming throne. It's got wheels that are on fire. It's kind of like his throne is a flaming chariot. That's power. It's, it's cool, but it's really frightening in a sense. But then look at verse 11. Because it's a, it's a, a powerful kingdom. But, but verse 11 says this, I looked then because of the sound of the great words, the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. So remember that fourth beast, that terrifying one, right? The one that kind of dwarfed all the others, had these 10 horns. It made these great boasts with, with its mouth. Well, it's just kind of a, a side comment just in passing. Oh, that, that beast was destroyed. It was thrown into the fire. It's nothing compared to the power of the Ancient of Days when he executes his judgment. Power is an apt description of the kingdom of God. But, but it's more than that too. In verse 13, we're introduced to one who is like a son of man. It says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. It's a really interesting description. The phrase son of man throughout the Old Testament was really just another way of saying a man. But this individual wasn't just a man. He's described as one who is like a son of man. Now, does that remind you of anyone? If you've read through the Gospels, you know that Jesus' favorite descriptor for himself was son of man. The son of man has come to do this or the son of man has come to do that. It's such an interesting picture because this one who is like a son of man, emphasizing his humanity, comes riding on the clouds. Now, when you read through the Old Testament, you will find at least a dozen references to God riding on the clouds. So Psalm 104, for instance, says that the Lord makes the clouds his chariot. So you have this picture of one who is like a son of man, but also one who is in the place of God. Does that remind you of anyone? This is the kind of king we have in Jesus, one who identifies with us in his humanity, but one who occupies the position and power of God in his deity. The kingdom of God is also superior in its universality. The first part of verse 14 goes on to say this. And to him, that's to the son of man or the one like a son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. All peoples, all nations, all languages shall serve him. It's a universal kingdom. Now, this means that there is no one who is excluded from the kingdom of God based on their ethnicity. There's no elevated status for anyone because of their nationality. And this is a picture of the church. We've been over this before, but the ancient world was a divided place. Many of those divisions were based in ethnic or national differences. They had their own form of tribalism or identity politics. Everyone was classified by virtue of which group they belonged to or didn't belong to. 
And the birth of the church obliterated all those differences. Here's what we read in the book of Acts on the day the church began. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Do you see the picture? Every language, tribe and people represented in the church. The church is made up of people from all nations, all languages. And it's meant to give us a picture of what God's kingdom in its final form will look like. So we read this in Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, this is a superior kingdom because it's a universal kingdom. It's not just Babylon. It's not just Persia. It's not just Greece or Rome. And then finally, the kingdom of God is superior because of its eternal nature. See, every kingdom of man eventually comes to an end. Babylon looked secure, but it was taken down. The same thing happened with Medo-Persia, with Greece, and with Rome. And it's happened with many kingdoms since that time. Every one of those kingdoms looked strong at the time that it was dominant, but every one of them came to an end. That will not be the case with the kingdom of God. It's an eternal kingdom. It will not just sort of cease to exist one day. The kingdom of God is superior to all other kingdoms. Third thing we discover in this passage is that the future is ultimately, but not immediately friendly for God's people. And we see this in the final section of the chapter. The future is ultimately friendly for God's people. Look at verse 17. It says, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And then verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. We will possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. That is the eventual outcome of the kingdoms in conflict. We are on the winning side. The future is ultimately friendly for us. But something else will happen first. And it's important that we know about the something else. The something else is that the future is not immediately friendly for us. Now, the Israelites of Daniel's generation were taken away into exile. It was predicted or prophesied that their exile would last for 70 years. And you could see how many of them, as they got close to the end of that exile, would have thought, well, now that our exile is over, everything's going to be great again. But it wasn't, because when the Babylonians were done, 
Persians were in power. And when the Persians were done, the Greeks were in power. When the Greeks were done, the Romans were in power. And all of them kept their thumb pressed down on the Israelites. So Daniel sees this. And he wants to know specifically about the fourth beast. So here's what he's told in verses 19 to 21. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. So he wants to know what is, the, what, what, what is this fourth beast about? And then speaking about this beast and the little horn that arises from it, it says in verse 25, he shall speak great words or speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. See, there will be a season where God's people are beaten down. There will be a period of time where it seems like we are getting crushed. Now, those of us living in the West have very little firsthand knowledge of this. But this is what our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, in many parts of the world, have been experiencing, and many of them for a long period of time. That persecution takes many forms. Everything from the loss of livelihood to beatings, arrest, and in some cases, death. The statistics are that more than 260 million Christians are suffering and persecuted for their faith in Jesus right now. I've spent time with believers who have been spit on, beaten, separated from their family, and arrested for preaching the gospel. And when I think about the church in the West, I don't think we're ready for this. Now, the New Testament says some jarring things. One of the things it says that I think is especially jarring is when Paul says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we hear that and we think, well, I, I don't actually believe that. I mean, I've never experienced it. I've never experienced persecution. And I would just say that I think we ought to question our commitment to living a godly life in Christ Jesus and what that means before we question the truth of that verse. See, so many Christians live as if our main goal is not to cause anyone any offense. Now, of course, our goal is not to be offensive in our manner, but our message is offensive. The message that our sins separate us from God and that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves is offensive. You just start telling people that and they will be offended. Especially people who think of themselves as good. The message of repentance that we preach is offensive. The exclusive claims of Christianity that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him is offensive to people. 
the Bible's view of human sexuality and the boundaries that it sets around that is offensive to people. If no one is offended by what we believe, it's probably because they don't actually know what we believe. We haven't told them. Now, listen, I'm all for being winsome. But sometimes our efforts to be winsome are actually more like cowardice. We're not actually standing up and living a godly life for Christ Jesus. Therefore, we're not experiencing any opposition. Jesus said it this way. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as, your, as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, that is why the future is not immediately friendly for God's people. But we do need to remember that the future is ultimately friendly for us. The kingdom of man gets its day in the sun. It has its 15 minutes of fame. But that eventually ends. So listen to verses 26 and 27, and I'll just close with this. So after the fourth beast and its little horn makes all of its boasts and it gets a season of ruling over God's saints, verses 26 and 27 say, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and and all dominions shall serve and obey him. See, there comes a day. It's the ultimate day when the kingdoms of man come to an end and the kingdom of God is seen in its full force. And we, as citizens of that kingdom, get to reign and rule forever and to be in the presence of our king. The future is ultimately friendly for us. Let's pray together. Father, we just acknowledge that we reside in the kingdoms of man. And while we're not looking to start a culture war or not looking to deliberately have opposition, God, we pray that you would give us the courage to live out our convictions. We are citizens of your kingdom before we're citizens of any other kingdom. So God, would you just give us the clarity of thought around that? Would you help us to know that, yes, it is true. That sometimes because of our commitment to you, we will face opposition. We might face persecution. But that we have something far more secure that waits for us. And so God, would you just allow us to be faithful? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.